Hey kittens, your favorite podcasts and TV shows make life more entertaining. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, Mattress Firm is offering 10% off their already low prices. So you can listen and watch your favorite entertainment from the comfiest, coziest spot there is, your bed. They also offer red carpet delivery, so you can stay on your old bed until they come and remove it to set up your new one. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast right now and save 10% with the code PODCAST10. I thank you, and the smartest man in the world podcast thanks you. salubrious confines of Toronto's most enchanting comedy confabulation, the second city here in Toronto, a room rich, rife, redolent, and replete with ribaldry and regalia and improvisation and sketch comedy of the highest caliber for the last thousand years, located across the street from the longest unending goddamn construction project in the history of the province of Ontario. I've been coming here for a hundred years, and that fucking building's never going to get built. It's just a dirt museum outside, and it has been forever. You can't even go outside and smoke a joint without inhaling asbestos and every other hideous chemical piling out of that building there, and people are in cranes, and people are in cherry pickers, and it's just marvelous. So uh, I want to give a shout-out to you. I'm in a group called Who's Live Anyway with uh, Ryan Stiles, uh, Jeff Davis, Joel Murray. Occasionally, uh, David Foley from Kids in the Hall sits in with us, and uh, yeah... We got a swinging little combo, and uh, uh, our musical director is named Bob Durkatch. And Bob Durkatch was musical director right here at Second City Toronto for 25 years. You can go upstairs. If you go upstairs to use the restroom, there's pictures of every single group that's ever played here. And Bob is the fellow with the glasses and that receding hairline. And he's in every single photograph up in the wall there. I took a bunch of pictures of him last night and sent them to him. And he was like, man, the walls have years. Have a good show, Drew. And... Uh, <laughs> because he's a lovely, lovely individual and a genius of music, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to Bob because it's so nice to be in the place where uh, he made his mark uh, for so long. Um, uh, there's a lot of lovely gifts here tonight that people have given me, uh, gifts of alcohol, gifts of books, uh, all the usual things we get here on the Proofcast. Some people in the back, as I was uh, saying hi, um, said to me, um, is it your birthday? And I'm like, no, why? And they go, because people are giving you gifts. And like, you've never been to a poop cast before. This is a, this is a Bacchanalia free-for-all of insanity. And uh, the audience has made me feel so, and by the audience, I mean you. Um, I'd like to make it as impersonal and corporate as I possibly can. You know, the revenue flow that's come into my life. No, uh, dealing with everybody and making a personal connection has been the most important thing to me over the last eight years of doing this Proofcast, and uh, I can't thank you all enough for all the fabulous gifts you've given and everything, and if some people can't understand just uh, generosity for its own sake, then wow. Um, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. They didn't know, they didn't know. Uh, I've got a little letter here uh, for the right honorable Mr. Proops. Uh, I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but we'll see who gave it to me. Uh, Leah, thank you very much. Enjoy these uh, gifts, the patches are stick-on. 
The flashlight is from the charity I work for, perfect for helping you get your keys in the door and wobbly late nights. No kidding. I'm blind as a bat and I'm deaf as a post. And uh, so for me, climbing downstairs and going into dark rooms, that well, I'm playing the Royal tonight, and I played the Royal the other night, and Andrew, who's on the comm here, uh, stage manages at the Royal. Um, there's a million ways to die at the Royal Theater here in uh, Toronto. Uh, you know, there's a cross backstage, right? Uh, there isn't one here, as you can see, because this is an improv theater. So we leave the spaces open, and usually there's cane back chairs on stage to indicate no budget. And... Um, <laughs> to indicate taking money from students for 50 years and then pretending it's still a fucking student production. And that's the story of improv, isn't it? Um, and I never went to an improv school. I didn't go to Second City. I'm not diminishing Second City. I think they're fabulous. I'm just saying I, I never went to an improv school. I learned it from the other kids, much like one learns swearing and smoking dope and spitting. So... Um, uh, I think you can learn it from other people. Uh, uh, and, and backstage at the, the, the cross uh, backstage at the Royal Theater is absolutely treacherous. And to make it better, uh, they've put a work light up. But the work light doesn't shine down upon where you're walking. The work light shines directly in your eye like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. So as soon as you start to cross backstage, I'm like, ah! And I have to put my hand up and block it. And Andrew said to me the other night, walk into the light. And I'm like, isn't that what you do when you die and your uncle is waiting for you there? And he's like, I'm sorry about all the shit I did. So thank you for this. I don't know what your charity is here. Uh, the Lifeline for Canada's Entertainment Industry, AFCHOPS.ca, which is Canada for our American friends, uh, not California. What, what do they do, Leah? Oh, that's fantastic. Emergency financial aid for people in the entertainment industry. A lot of people think, yes, you can applaud if you like. It's so important to help one another. Um, a lot of people think because uh, you've been on a TV show or you did something once ever that you're set for life and you're not. I can assure you uh, that you have to work all the goddamn time, including doing afternoon shows in Toronto when you should be smoking dope. And uh, they, uh, there was a cat on the Cosby show. You read about him a couple of weeks ago. He was working at a Trader Joe's because after Bill Cosby got done, uh, uh, um, they stopped showing all of the um, uh, reruns on television and his residuals dried up and he had to get a gig. And everybody's like... Uh, one of the right-wing outlets tried to out him and like, yeah, he's got, you know, he's got a job in a trade with Joe. Hey, fuck you. All work is honorable if you dignify it. I learned that a long time ago. People who get into things to be famous uh, have no idea what they're doing. There is nothing to fame whatsoever. Having some renown and the low-level heat that I have is exactly where I want to be in my life. I have enough people listening to me, enough like-minded people that want to join on, enough people that relate to me that it's just fantastic. Um, being a big-time television star or a movie star or whatever or anything like that, you don't want it. I promise you, you don't want it. I know a lot of famous people, and you don't want them. Uh, you, you don't want their life. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. You have money and you never have to worry about uh, buying anything or, 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 you know, running out of weed or being able to see a doctor. But there's a giant fucking trade-off and it's called selling your soul to Satan, to, as Bill Hicks once said, sucking Satan's cock so you can be fucking famous. Uh, <laughs> And it's something not everybody does. I was just in here uh, uh, right before my show watching Margaret Cho, and I, who I admire greatly. And I, st uh, I started in San Francisco in 1946, right after the war. And uh, <laughs> Margaret was a child when I started. And the woman who was interviewing her, I went backstage and I spoke to them. And she was like, how do you know Margaret? And I'm like, I'm a comedian. She's like, really, where? And I was like, uh, uh, in San Francisco. Margaret was a 20-year-old open micer when I first saw her. And she would wear like little leather shorts on stage. And... Um, she used to do a joke where she'd go, I love that song, Vogue. I think every magazine should have its own theme. And uh, <laughs> then I remember working with her, and she was featuring for me, and I was headlining. And I came up to her, and I went, how, how was your day today? And she went, I had to fly to Hollywood to do a meeting with Nora Ephron. So I came on stage after her, and I went... Uh, <laughs> 
by the way, this is the last time you're going to see Margaret Cho for $14. (laughs) And it was. Uh, So thank you very much for this. Uh, 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 This flashlight. It's... Ah! I am... And all the other things that you've given me here. I don't know what's in the package. Oh, they're little kitten stickers. Look at you. It's a little sticker of a kitten, and it says meow. And then... Oh, look, there's two. There's one, there's one that's a little black and white cat and then one with a little eye patch cat. Look, kittens, look. Greg, this is bullshit. I've never heard such maudlin, tawdry shit in my entire... Uh-uh, kittens. We're in Toronto now. Be nice. This is Canada. People are always nice here. No one's sarcastic because they don't know what irony is. It's fantastic to be in a country where so many people are named Doug and... And no one is sarcastic here. My sarcasm falls on deaf ears here. I'll say something awful and people are like, mm, that's really mean. That's just, that's just mean. Uh, Andrew gave me this. Dear Greg, thank you for letting me interview you for Showbiz Monkeys. And thank you, Showbiz Monkeys, for all the lovely ink you gave me here. Um, I got a very nice review from them. Now, mind you, I got a standing ovation at my first show. So if you'd given me a bad review, I would have come down and beat the shit out of you. <laughs> Believe me, I've gotten bad reviews at shows that everybody liked. That's what I love about criticism, right? People come to see a show and they're like, yeah, well, everybody cheered and stamped and had a good time, but it wasn't for me. Um, It's Art Oracles, Creative and Life Inspiration from the Great Artists, Guide to the Art Oracles. And it's got uh, Edvard Munch here and Yayo Kasuma, uh, who's having a show here in Toronto uh, as we speak. I noticed that uh, if you have a chance to see Kasuma, um, um, she's the one who does those fanciful, unbelievable sea creature-like polka dot things that are all handcrafted. She does every bit of it because of uh, her mental state. She has a power of concentration that's extraordinary. Klaus Oldenburg and loads and loads of artists have ripped her off over the years. But fortunately, uh, in her... um, older years, uh, she's attained an extraordinary measure of renown. And I, I assure you, if you go to see a Kasuma show, you'll be overwhelmed uh, with the creativity and, uh, and thrust into a gigantic pool uh, of imagination that hitherto you did not know existed. Let's see what this is here. Thank you very much for that. We love art. Um, warning, may contain poetry, shameless flattery, and vodka. Wow, that's what I live on. <laughs> As Victor Alexander said, flattery, uh, shameless flattery and vodka are are how I... I, uh, uh, uh. Is there a woman here who has any strength in their hands? There, finally I got it. Oh my God, this this scotch tape is amazingly binding. Oh, that's so thoughtful. You know that I didn't have a lemon in my room. I have have access to ice because I'm staying in a hotel. It's the Spirit of York vodka. That's so nice. And there's a giant lemon to go with it. I'll get to that later tonight after the Royal Show. Uh, well, I stayed up all night last night watching Aretha Franklin and Stevie Wonder videos and crying over the state of America. And uh, yeah, just watching uh, genius titanic black artists and knowing that my country is run by white supremacist neo-Nazi, um, not neo-Nazi, let's put it on the line, Nazis. Uh, <laughs> If they were neo-Nazis, they would have a shred of dignity or integrity or anything besides wanting to cage children and uh, make trans people feel awful and destroy women's lives and and, uh, shoot uh, people of color. But they don't. Uh, The agenda of the Republican Party is exactly that. There isn't another agenda. Don't think that they're nice people and don't think that they have a right to an opinion. They don't anymore. Um, Jennifer said it to me last night. Um, There isn't two sides to every story. There's what's right and there's the abyss. And the Republican Party in the United States is in the abyss right now. There is not a shred of decency amongst any of them. I don't want to hear what they say. As long as there's a child in a cage, as long as trans people can't go to the bathroom, as long as they want to destroy women's health, as long as they support police shooting fucking people of color every two seconds, I have no truck with them and they have no right to an opinion. 
if, if you think I'm being harsh, to cast your mind back to 1939 in Germany or whatever, and uh, the, the Nazi Reich has, has had power for six years, which they took in a minority uh, white supremacist coup grab, um, uh, would, would you have ca called me crazy then if I'd said the Nazis are bad and they don't have a leg to stand on because of their policy of eradication and hawa, horror, sorry, my R's are a little loose. Um, you wouldn't, and so I feel like we're in the exact same position. I'm not being an alarmist, I'm being a realist. And by the way, at the end of all this comes their ultimate destruction, because they're sowing the seeds of it now. And we win in the fucking end. I don't care how many people start a people's fucking party, right-wing conservative bullshit thing up here in Canada. I don't care how many Ford brothers are premiers of Ontario. <laughs> Um, we, we are winning and we will win. Thank you for all this. What is this poem here? Let's see here. Uh, Cats, Cat and Door for Poncho. Did you write this one? Oh no, this is Doyale Islam. One night as I came in, the Brighton Hall opened to him. He saw, almost dared, wait a minute. Is it go this way? Am I reading it the wrong way? Read the left side then the right side. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I hope that's the person who gave it to me. Not just some bizarre instruction from some rando fucking Argonauts fan or whatever. I don't know, read that part, then read the other part. I'm going to learn to say Toronto the way you guys do. Toronto. Toronto. See, because I'm from San Francisco, and we say it that way. No one says San Francisco. We say San Francisco. And I'm from San Carlos. And then down the peninsula is San Jose. It looks like San Jose, but it's San Jose. And then Santa Cruz, which is even further down, is Santa Cruz. And we, we, don't, we can't pronounce um, uh, U's and O's, so we say um, fur and gist. We don't say for and just. And we can't say the word quarter. A quarter is a denomination I'm sure you're familiar with. In the United States uh, uh, and here, uh, in California, we say quarter. And that's a San Francisco accent. But I was listening to some people as I was uh, eavesdropping on them last night, walking behind them on my way to a ghastly Chinese place that wouldn't allow me in and was fetid anyway. So I went to a nice Thai place after. Um, and the guy went, yeah, well, you've come all the way to Toronto. And I was like, wow, I've got to learn to say it that way. Here we go. From the left to the right. One night as I came in the Brighton Hall, open to him. He saw, almost dared to stride, sensed his limits, and his eyes were wide. I shut the door, so there he crouches, a creature in my mind, bent after new thought. Was it inevitable, the key thrust, the turn? I remember his pleasure at a bird's call, her tilly tilly, how all of him leapt like light to light, returning darkness soon curtailed, curtained. His vision, was it a dutiful hand or a cruel master who gave glimpse of that golden wing? Did he live by it or die by it? Solidness, suddenly, a hushed measure. Thank you very much for that. That's really lovely. Thank you for the alcohol. Thank you for the poetry. Thank you for the shameless flattery. Thank you for the lemon. It'll all go into use tonight. As I watch Temptations videos over and over and over again. I know you're going to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. And if I have to beg and plead for your sympathy, I don't mind, because you mean that much to me. Ain't you proud to beg? And you know it. Oh, please don't leave me, girl. Don't you go. Ain't you? Thank you so much. Uh, this is a black cow vodka, which looks very, very interesting, named after one of my favorite Steely Dan songs.
I can't cry anymore while you run around. God, my wife hates Steely Dan. She really fucking hates them. Uh, thank you, Rachel. That's so sweet of you. Thank you for that vodka. It's very, very kind. Um, I only have two more nights here, so it's almost perfect. I have two bottles of vodka. <laughs> you think I'm joking. <laughs> Try having 45 as a president and be triggered the way we are this week and see if you don't fucking drink a bottle of vodka every day. Uh, this is lovely. I don't know who gave me this. 10-minute talk show. Thanks, Greg. Who's this from? What's your name? Sarah. Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. That's so lovely. It's a little notebook and a little sticker and whatnot. Is this your show? It's a late night talk show. Now you're doing a commercial on my show. I'll say to the audience in promotion uh, what Prince once said when I saw him uh, on the Purple Rain tour. I was on mushrooms and. Um, it was really super excellent, and uh, at Prince, uh, you know, did all, he humped the floor for a while, and he humped the guitar for a while, and he ejaculated from a guitar for a while, and, and, and then uh, Wendy pretended to fillet him for a while. You know, it was, it was family fun, and uh, then he sat down at the piano and sang free, right? And he goes, be glad if you are free, and then turns to the audience and goes, sing if you want to. <laughs> free to change your mind, and then the crowd sang, and he went, thank you. So, as far as 10-minute talk show goes, listen if you want to. Um, <laughs> uh, Alex, was it? And Josh? Jason. Jason there, sorry, Josh and Jason. Listen, I live in L.A. Thank you, that was a Jewish joke. <laughs> Every single one of the people who works at all of the agencies is named Josh and Jason. You've not heard that one? And, uh, 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 the, what a show business is, is going to rooms full of people named Josh. <laughs> you think I'm being anti-Semitic, but I'm not. This is Canadian. Uh, gave me a book called Louis Armstrong in his own words, and I can't wait to read this. Uh, it's a diary of Louis Armstrong, uh, one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. And possibly, the, man, I, I think you could argue that he popularized jazz. Obviously, there was King Oliver, and uh, he was a great fan of King Oliver and Jelly Roll Morton, and of course, Louis Armstrong's wife, um, who was astoundingly important in his... Um, uh, let's see here, from his breaking color barriers in Hollywood to the infamous King of the Zulus incident in 1949 and his last days in Queens, New York. Uh, controversial opinions about racism, marijuana, bebop, and fellow jazz artists. Uh, somebody say stop. Okay. Uh, of course the word tuberculosis never did cross my mind very much. Whoa, okay. <laughs> kind of hoping for a King Oliver marijuana riff there. Ended up with a little tuberculosis riff. I guess his mother died of tuberculosis. Also gave me this lovely poetry book here called Al Purdy Selected Poems. Uh, Rooms for Rent in the Outer Planets is the name of it. Uh, also, uh, uh, thanking Jennifer and thank you very much. What does this say? I may love, let her better love and celebrate the goddess Emily. Ah, this reality is Jennifer. Thank you. Well, good luck to you with your Emily. Uh, and uh, thank you for mentioning Jennifer. Oh, here's a little line from the poem that I think um, well, is good. Um, of course they're curious, perhaps wish to see me perform, I moo off key, I bark like a man, laugh like a dog, and talk like God. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and then these young ladies in the front row here uh, gave me this excellent uh, book. Oh, look, it's two fish in a tank. One's in a bottle of vodka and one's in a, a fishbowl. <laughs> and the one that's in the bottle of vodka saying, this is awesome. <laughs> Heather, and what was your name? 
Donna. Thank you, Heather and Donna. They gave me a book by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, who are two eminent uh, sci-fi writers you may know. Uh, and, and I love this. Uh, you can tell it's a British uh, publication because it says, as heard on Radio 4. <laughs> and now the shipping news. Is anything more uh, uh, dulcet than Radio 4? And is anything more soporific? It's like audio lunesta. It just lulls you to fucking sleep. Coming up soon, the archers, but now the news. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, has promised that all of England's economy will collapse in the next two weeks. Former... Former Minister Boris Johnson has admitted that he's a twat of the highest caliber. And in Cornwall, there's biscuits all over the motorway. I met Terry Pratchett, who wrote the Ringworld series. Years ago, I did a really wildly unsuccessful uh, sci-fi game show with uh, Bill Bailey and... um, Oh, bugger, what's his name? Uh, uh, Who's in Red Dwarf? Uh, The lead of Red Dwarf. The little short... Craig Charles. Craig, Craig Charles, Craig Charles, Bill Bailey, and me—they uh, were the team captains, and I was the uh, uh, moderator. And I, we wore uh, like Star Trek uniforms and shit. Uh, Bill, William Shatner did the show. Uh, uh, Walter Koenig did the show. Who plays Chekhov, right? And uh, I may have told this before, but fuck it—it's a good time to tell the Terry Pratchett story. So I go. I, William Shatner was awesome. He uh, uh, he kissed everybody. He kissed Bill. Uh, he he did a dance. He took pictures with us. I have an autographed picture of me with William Shatner. Um, I said, how'd you get over, Bill? He goes, I took Virgin. <laughs> and I go, well, how did you like it? They're nice, right? And he goes, yes. They're nice. <laughs> I swear to God. Talking to him, he speaks ex- exactly like Captain Kirk all the time. It's not a character. I'd like some more d'oeuvres. So I go back to meet Walter, and Walter couldn't have been nicer. And I said, thank you very much for coming on the show, Walter. Um, we all love you as uh, uh, Ensign Chekhov. And he goes, Greg, Ensign Chekhov's just one character I've done in a long career. <laughs> and I was like, I get it. I'll go no further down this line of questioning. It's like when people come up to me and go, I like you on whose line? I don't go, um... Whose line's just one thing that I've been on for 30 fucking years? I can't believe you know me from that. How come you don't know me from, uh, what was that obscure piece of shit I was on? I swear to God, I was in a Dr. Doolittle movie. I was in like Dr. Doolittle 4 or whatever. I'm not kidding, as a dog's voice. And I have one line. And I'm in, there's a bear movie too. I can't remember the name of the bear movie. What was it called? Oh, brother. See, someone remembers it. I don't remember it. I was in it. I play lover bear in a movie called Brother Bear. And all I do is go, uh, I love you. And then another bear goes, get a cave. So if you come up to me and go, I locked you on whose line, I'm not going to go, um, whose line's just one role I've played? Perhaps you have heard Brother Bear? Or perhaps Kaina, the prophecy where I played Gomi? Nobody? I loved Kaina, the prophecy. It was a really strange movie. I don't know if it was any good, but it was really strange. I'm awesome in it. 
No one fucking saw it. I'm in a movie now that's on Netflix called um, Duck, Duck, Goose with uh, uh, um, uh, Jim Gaffigan and Zendaya. Yeah, Zendaya. Uh, Craig Ferguson and Stephen Fry, Carl Reiner. There's all these voices in it. We didn't get distribution in North America. It played all over the world, but not fucking here. So it went right to fucking Netflix. And I play the bad guy in it. So I have a great part. I'm a one-eyed cat named Bonzu who's trying to kill the little ducks the whole time. The little ducklings, I'm trying to eat them the whole time. There's a scene in the hen house where I take the egg and I'm like, so where are the ducklings? <laughs> you know, it got to be a psychopath in it. I was like Bruce Dern, it was fantastic. And I did Bad George Sanders. If you remember, George Sanders was Shere Khan the Tiger in the Jungle Book. So I'm doing Bad George Sanders through the whole thing. There's a scene where they sing a song and I'm like, bravo. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's not a bad movie. Uh, Again, uh, laboring obscurity is one of the hallmarks of my career. I- I've been on uh, uh, many TV shows. One of those TV... No, two. One show I was on lasted two seasons. That was True Jackson VP. And the other's been on since time fucking began. And other than that, every other show I was on lasted one year or less. I've had shows canceled in the middle of the run twice. Uh, we did a show called Trust Us With Your Life years ago. It came out during the 2012 Olympics. And uh, it was up against the Olympics when it premiered. And they pulled it after two episodes. And then I was on another show on the Discovery Channel called, what the fuck was that called? Head Games. Not named after the song by Foreigner. Thank you, the three people that remember that fucking shitty song. And I think they pulled that before they showed all ten of them. But it was fantastic. Whoopi Goldberg produced it, and we had Chinese food together, so it was good for I don't know why I'm telling celebrity stories now. It just sort of fell into that. It was, oh, because of Walter Koenig. So anyway, I met Terry Pratchett on, uh, on that show. And uh, he couldn't have been nicer, and I was really, really chuffed to meet him. Uh, it, he, he's passed, as I recall. Uh, Neil Gaiman I've never got to meet. Uh, but I did see, who wrote Game of Thrones? What's the name of that author? What's his name? Everyone's murmuring because this is Canada. No one ever just stands up and declares in Canada. People go, if his name uh, was, um, uh, if he was the Winnie the Pooh author, you could all say him because then it would be A, A, Milne. Um, George R.R. Wh- R. R. Martin. I saw him once at Valvona and Crolla in um, Edinburgh and we went like this to each other and that was about it. <laughs> But I should have gone up to him now that I realize it. Because my wife turns and goes, that's fucking George R. R. Martin. And I'm like, it is? And, but it was, of course, him. I'll tell you another one that I, I met. M- Michael Connolly, the author. He's a very famous author. He writes thrillers or something. And I was at a party. Uh, Craig Ferguson had written a book. And um, uh, I, I was at the party. Okay, I was drunk. Okay, it was noisy. Okay, I can't hear. So all of those things came into play. I'm deaf, I'm drunk, and it's noisy. So if there's any background noise, I can't hear a fucking thing. And Craig Ferguson introduced me to Michael Connolly. And... Uh, he, he went, Greg, little Michael Connelly, right? Because it's fucking, he's from Glasgow, right? And when it's after hours, he has more of an accent. And I went like this. I shook Michael Connelly's hand and I went, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. And he went, my name is Michael Connelly. And I was like, oh. I'm sorry, I thought you were Dick Francis. He was so fucking mad at me, and I thought, you know what? Fuck you. No one knows what you fucking look like. You're a book cover. 
Right? If it was Stephen King, you'd fucking recognize him. He's six feet tall, he's got a beard, he's got the glasses. Everybody knows who fucking Stephen King looks like. Even Barbara Cartland I would have recognized, right? Because as Jenny Eclair once said, she had a, a fluffy pink clitoris. So you would recognize Barbara Cartland. <laughs> Michael Conley was so angry with me. And I was like, why? I can't hear. I'm loaded. Fuck you. I didn't say fuck you. I was nice. I, I just went, I'm, hi, Michael. I was like, I never get mad when people don't know who I am. Uh, only, uh, only if they ask me about whose line, because I just hate it. Does anyone know what time we started? We started late. Like 10 minutes late? Oh, wait, there's a clock on here. Okay, never mind. <laughs> uh, we got a lot to get to, but I want to plug a couple things. We're here, and then, uh, because we're here, but this will go out after. Uh, tonight I'm at the Royal, and then um, tomorrow I'm at Yuck Yucks at 8 o'clock. Um, and someone came in tonight and said, is it going to be like two different you know, sets of material? Um, no. I'm a stand-up comic. I make up stuff. Yeah, 10 minutes of it will be new tonight. And the other 50 minutes will be material that you heard from the other show because I'm working on... I have a new album coming out. It's called The Resistance. It'll be out hopefully October 5th and it'll be on iTunes and shit like that. This is a super pluggy show today. I didn't mean it to be this way, but it, what the fuck? Case or all. I'm not drunk, so you guys get drunk. Um, <laughs> Uh, 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 and uh, that's all new material and it was recorded a month ago in San Francisco so it's all about Orange 45 it's all about cage babies it's all about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica it's all about scooters and douchebaggery and male privilege and fucking Matt Lauer and all the toxicity going on in the world and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a document and I wanted it to come out as fast as possible don't you do it every week in a podcast yeah but it's fun to put out an album every once in a while and besides I had to do a retro jazz cover because no one does them anymore because no one likes jazz except me and Jennifer evidently so um uh <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Then we'll be at the uh, Helium in Portland on the 18th through the 21st. Uh, we're doing Nightmare Before Christmas Live at the Hollywood Bowl. That's with Danny Elfman and Catherine O'Hare. Pee Wee Herman and Ken Page. Yeah, it's fucking fun. It's the greatest thing I do, and we've added one more show. It's going to be the 26th, 27th, and 28th of October. We're going to do three shows. I don't know if we're taping. There's talk about that. We'll see what fucking happens. Um, it is really fucking fun. I get to wear a fez, and I stand uh, next to John Mossieri, who's the conductor and the, uh, who was Leonard Bernstein's protege, and he's, he's here, right? And you're me right there. So when I'm standing there singing, he's pacing down, and he cues you, boom, and then he sings the fucking songs with me. He sings the songs with everyone. He sings all the songs. He's just awesome beyond measure. And um, he never raises his voice. And he never gets angry. There's a hundred and something of us, 140 of us on stage. There's like 20 people in the chorus, five principal singers, all the other stars, uh, uh, and a, a hundred-piece orchestra. And last year we were at rehearsal, and he went to one of the members of the orchestra. I'm uh, trying to understand what I can do to get through to you. I've waved my baton, I've snapped my fingers, I, I wonder what it will take for you to pay attention to me. And 140 professional people went like this. It's worse than being yelled at, I assure you. The first rehearsal I attended, we were nattering like nitwits in the corner, uh, me and the other singers, and John went like this to us. And I... I haven't been snapped out since I was eight years old. Yeah, he's just amazing. Uh, it's really good. We sing the movie live, and then we stop the movie, and then Danny comes out and sings, and then we stop the movie, and uh, uh, the fucking... The fact that I get to even talk to Catherine O'Hara in my life is so fucking exciting to me. And that she'll speak to me. She actually speaks to me, which is nice. Uh, 
and, uh, and Ken Page is there and all that, and she comes out and sings, and my God, she's in fantastic voice. Uh, they all are, they're really, really groovy. Uh, then we're gonna be in Australia with uh, Colin and Mo uh, Colin and Mockery. <laughs> with Colin and his Mockery. With the, the human being known as Colin Mockery and uh, Brad Sherwood, his partner. Uh, me, Colin, and Brad will be in Australia the 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, 22nd, 20, uh, all of November, and then um, we'll be in um, New Zealand as well. You can go to gregproofs.com and find all the tickets and all that jazz there. And then uh, we'll be in um, uh, Paris at the Shakespeare and Company on December 11th. And we'll be uh, at the Royal Albert Hall with uh, Colin Mockery, Brad Sherwood, Jeff Davis, Josie Lawrence, Clive Anderson, and Linda and Laura uh, to do Who's Line uh, on the 15th and 16th in London. And then I'll be at the Soho Theater on the 17th for a podcast. Also, I'm on the road with Who's Line, um, Ryan and all those guys. Uh, we're on the road starting next week for like three weeks all over America uh, and then again in November, so uh, catch us there, and jazz like that, we're on the road. And don't ask me when I'm coming to your town. I've been to your fucking town. <laughs> People go, I'll go, we're going we're gonna to play Columbus, we're going to play uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey, we're going to play Westbury, we're going to play Washington, D.C., we're going to play Wilmington, Delaware, and they're like, when are you coming to Akron? Hey, fuck you! <laughs> I'm going everywhere I can, as fast as I fucking can. I swear to God, in Australia, well, you're not, you're, you're not, coming, to, you're not coming to Darwin? No, I'm not coming to Darwin! Or Tasmania, I'm sorry. You'll have to fly up from Taz to see the show. You'll have, no one goes to Darwin, by the way. And we're not going to uh, uh, Alice Springs either. All right, let's jump right in here. Uh, this has been a really wild week, uh, a very triggering week um, in America. I don't know if you're following along at all because you're Canadian and you might have just passing interest in our Supreme Court. But of course, the Supreme Court um, is a, a, has been a group of um, ancient white men who are as conservative as can be. And only in the last, um, I don't know, since 1967 when they put the first black person, Thurgood Marshall, on the court. And then what was it, 83, when um, Reagan put the first woman on the court. There have been, in the sum total history of the Supreme Court, two people of color and four women. That's in 200 and something years of American history. And we're arguing now about putting another white guy on the fucking court after we already put a white guy on the court when Barack Obama had appointed Merrick Garland and uh, the Senate stalled it for 10 months and never ever heard him, uh, gave him a questioning, gave him any kind of confirmation hearing. But what makes this story wild is that um, Mr. Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh, if you will, Brett Kavanaugh, has been portrayed as this family guy and a carpool dad. And there was a, a horrible scene in front of the Senate where he had all these 15-year-old girls sit behind him who are his, his basketball team that he coaches and shit like that. And what's come out in the last week is that a woman, um, a professor uh, who uh, teaches at Stanford now and taught at Pepperdine, um, has accused him of trying to sexually assault her when she was 15 years old. And our president, Orange 45, who you may have noticed over the last year and a half and in his entire lifetime, has never gone to bat for anyone who needs help. He's never once stood up for anyone who couldn't stand up for themselves. He only stands up for pedophiles, sexual assaulters, uh, people who beat their wives, and I mean people who are accused of it, people who've been fired of it, people who've gone to prison for it. That's who he stands up for. Uh, Joe Arpaio, who was running a torture camp in Arizona where he was the uh, sheriff of Maricopa County. Uh, David Clark, who had people die in custody when he was sheriff of Milwaukee. These are the people he stands up for. Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, who's going to go to jail to the end of fucking time. Trust me on this. Paul Manafort gave up almost $50 million in assets and made a deal with the special counsel that he can't have lawyers with him when they question him. You realize what this means, of course. That This isn't, as I've said before on the show, he calls it a witch hunt. Let's call it a witch hunt. I'm from San Francisco. There's witches. 
we found a bunch of witches. Paul Manafort is the head fucking witch. And he's going down, baby. And it's not going to get better and it's not going to go away and he can't make it dissolve. Paul Manafort made his wife have sex with groups of guys in front of him. And our president called him a wonderful guy, a great guy with a wonderful family. His daughter changed her name last week from Manafort because she doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. These are the only people he sticks up for. Rob Porter, who was accused of beating his wife and you saw her picture in the paper with her black eye. What a wonderful guy he is. Um, Paul Manafort's a wonderful guy. Um, uh, 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 Roger Ailes, who was the former head of Fox News, who's done more destruction to discourse in the United States and in North America than any other human being I could think of by creating a a, a right-wing Nazi think tank echo chamber that uh, literally the people who support um, Orange 45 don't think they have to get out and vote this November because he keeps telling him that they're going to win. That's the kind of delusional world they live in. Roger Ailes was fired from his position as president of Fox News because so many women came forward and said he assaulted them over the years or he made them have sex with him to get forward or he groped them or whatever he did. Roger Ailes was a wonderful guy. A terrible thing happened to him. What a disgraceful day it was. Um, Bill O'Reilly, who was on Fox News. Oh, lovely guy. <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh. He said yesterday, we've got to fight for Kavanaugh. This is really awful what's happening to him and his family. How about what happened to um, Professor Ford, Dr. Ford, Dr. Blaisley Ford, when she was in high school? Isn't that terrible for her? I'm so infernally, absolutely over defending white guys and their sexual fucking misconduct. It's over for me. I'm so bloody furious this week that I could blow a fucking gasket. I haven't been able to eat or sleep in a week, and I don't mean to pour the shit on you, but you're gonna fucking hear it anyway. And this is why. Because every single person in this room has either had something awful happen to them, um, someone abused you sexually, or you know someone who does. There's no one that this hasn't touched. And I won't hear it anymore. When people go, well, it never happened to me, and those girls are lying, and the women are lying, they're horrible, horrible liars. 19 women have come forward and said that Orange 45 predicated on them or abused them, including, not including, his wife Ivana, who said that he raped her and then walked that back later afterward, right? And he's defending a man who assaulted a girl when he was in high school, purportedly, and who belonged to a club when he was at Georgetown called the Tits and Clits Club that would raid other women's dormitories, steal their panties, and parade them around campus, and their slogan was no means yes and yes means anal. They were known to get blackout drunk and assault women all the bloody time and really make women's lives a living hell. He also made it a, a prerequisite to work in his law office. First of all, his mentor was disgraced and disbarred for fucking being a predator in the office. He... Judge Kavanaugh made sure that every woman in his office looked like a model. That was a prerequisite for working for him. They had to have a certain look, meaning they had to be hot, right? This shit is fucking over. The Republican Party has dug itself into a gigantic hole. Roy Moore was accused of being a pedophile when he ran for the Senate in Alabama. A bunch of women came forward, including a woman who had her house burned down because she said, when I was 15, he waited for me at 14. He waited for me at a custody hearing and hit on me afterward. These are the people that he defends. It is a prerequisite to be in this administration that you're an abuser of women. They refuse to recognize women. They refuse to recognize women's autonomy. They refuse to recognize women's uh, 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 right to any kind of fair hearing whatsoever. Women are simply liars or bimbos or prostitutes or people to beat or daughters that you sexually desire. And I will not fucking have it anymore. I am so 
fucking bloody steamed about this that I can't even tell you. Um, the 11 Republican men who sit on the Judiciary Committee, who are the ones who are going to question uh, Professor Blaisley Ford this week, have fiddle-fucked this around as hard as humanly possible. And they're all rich, old, white guys. What does that bloody tell you? Look at the optics of this. 11 rich old white guys want to get this woman on the stand and tell her she's a fucking liar because she won't let Brett Kavanaugh with his rosacea and his fucking camper van. (laughs) Because it was youthful antics. They keep saying things like, well, he was 17. You can't be responsible. Yeah, you fucking can. When I was in college, I was... Uh, uh, in a play called Equus, right? And uh, Equus is a play about a young boy who's disturbed and um, he's sexually uh, repressed. Every night he masturbates with a bit in his mouth and he tortures himself. And Yeah, it's a fun play. And <laughs> eventually a girl is attracted to him. He gets a job as a stable hand because he obsesses over horses. And every night he takes one of the horses out, the biggest horse, and he rides it until he ejaculates all over himself. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Notice that was a man who did that. A man was like, oh, that's gross. All the women were like, tell me more. (laughs) Because all the women know that this is what men are fucking like. He's sexually dysfunctional. He is mentally ill. So uh, uh, eventually he meets a girl and, and she's sexually attracted to them. And they're about to have sex. And they're in the stable and all the horses are there. The horses that he takes out every night as his sexual totems that he runs his rituals with that he's obsessed his whole life around. And he loses his shit. And he throws the girl out. He doesn't attack her. And he blinds all the horses. And that's how the play starts with the psychiatrist trying to cure him of his mental illness because he's committed this terrible act. In act two, you have to get completely naked. I was 19 years old. I was whipped thin, enormous cock. And <laughs> the front row had to wear goggles. There was a warning. I don't, you know, I don't want to go into it. I don't want to go into it and I don't want to brag. But uh, uh, very successful play at school. And lying around the block. And uh, like I said, I was whipped thin, but you had to get your clothes off. And our director, Alma Becker, was a very nice lady. And we did the first rehearsal alone, uh, me and uh, the woman uh, who played uh, Jill, Bonnie. And, uh, uh, and then we had one with the crew in, and then we had one with an audience and everything. And I remember standing there naked on stage one night. The first night was weird. Then the second night I realized when you're naked on stage, you have all the power. No one even cleared their fucking throat, right? <laughs> there was 300 people in this theater, and it was... Two naked teenagers on stage, right? And we were good looking. And, uh, and of course, you know, blinding. And uh, uh, I remember standing there with my knob hanging out on stage. And by the way, people go, hey, you, ever, you ever fucking get a hard on when you're doing the play? No. I didn't say I was in a show in Amsterdam. I wasn't fucking a pony. It was a play. No, you're not sexually aroused when you're on stage. You're focused on what you're fucking doing up there. So I, I remember standing there at the edge of the stage, and I said, I don't know what to do. And Alma said, cover yourself, right? Just put your hands there like that. And I, the whole audience would be fucking silent through this thing, right? And then, he, of course, he stabs the horse's eyes out and everything. So why are you telling this story? There was a professor at State who taught lighting. His name was Robert Seagrin, and I hope he's fucking dead. And he took pictures of the play, which was his right. He had done the lighting on the play. He took pictures of me and Bonnie naked, right? And then he showed them in his lighting class every day. He was showing my naked pictures in the class. One of the students in the lighting class told me about it. So I went to Professor Seagrin and I said, I really wish you wouldn't show the naked pictures of me in the class. And he said, that's not your decision, Greg. It's my class. 
and I'll show what I bloody well want. And so I went, well, I have an issue with that, Professor Seagren. And he went, well, I don't care. And so I went to the dean of the drama department at San Francisco State with my good friend Forrest, who had my back. Forrest said, we can't let this stand. And I was like, I don't want to do anything about it. I'm too scared. And he went, we're going to the dean. So we went to the dean, and we said, Professor Seagren's showing naked pictures of me in class. And he was like, yeah. And I said, I don't want him to show naked pictures of me in class. And he said, well, what do you intend to do about it? And I said, go to the dean of the fucking college. Because I was in College Bowl, which was a game show that we used to play in those days, and I'd had lunch with the president. So I actually knew him well enough to fucking, I was like 19 years old. I could go, like, and I said, I'll go to the dean of this school, and I'll go to the fucking San Francisco Chronicle if I fucking have to. And then I got a meeting. So we went into the meeting, and Professor Seagren came with a box of slides, and he was furious at me, boiling with anger the whole fucking time, for real. I was scared. I was a kid. I was just like, Whoa. and he took the slides out, and the dean of the department sat there, and he burnt them with a lighter in front of me in a dish. That's what adults are like. That's what men are like. That's what clubs of men are like. They protect fucking predators. If that story is not creepy enough for you, uh, <sighs> we've all been assaulted at one point in our life. We've all been in a situation that we didn't want to be in. We've all been trapped in a room with someone who wanted to do things to us that we didn't want done to us. Often, we have apologized to those people because we didn't want to hurt their feelings. How many people are with me on this one? Um, it happens to all of us. And you don't have to feel bad. You don't have to say you're sorry. You don't have to say you're sorry for coming fucking forward. You don't have to say you're sorry for being honest. They're the perpetrator. They, you are the victim in this. And there's no reason at any point, any man or woman, especially women, but men get assaulted too by the goddamn way. And no one ever wants to talk about that at all. There's loads of jokes about it all the time about uh, uh, how when you go to prison, that's part of the punishment. Fuck that shit. Um, rape is rape, and it's a really horrible thing. So what this has done in the United States, this Kavanaugh nomination and the subsequent uh, 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 revealing that he uh, purportedly assaulted uh, Professor uh, uh, was in that uh, he ran with this group of creepy, rapey guys and that his mentor was creepy and rapey and, uh, and that every single person in this administration, uh, Rob Porter's been thrown out for being a, an abuser. Steve Bannon, who was thrown out of the White House, uh, abused his wife. We know that uh, Orange 45 is a predator. It's all of a piece. It's all of a piece. Um, two people today, today, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, the spokesman for the GOP on Kavanaugh nomination resigns, accused of harassment in the past. Garrett Ventry, 29, communications director and aide to the chair of the committee, Charles Grassley, the chair of the Judiciary Committee. He's had to resign because of sexual harassment. That was today. So every single person involved in this is a perpetrator. And they want to make every, all of us feel fucking awful about our lives. They want to make us feel awful because things have happened to us that we were too afraid to come out to. So 45 at a rally, and 45 said last night at one of his idiotic rallies where people yell lock her up and all that shit. Where they, lock her up means I don't want women to have a voice. It, Hillary Clinton is the emblem of powerful womanhood to them. And they're bete noir, and, and they're, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're chief bad guy, their biggest witch. They want to go after her all the time. And the lock her up, uh, and the Trump the bitch, and the she sucks but not like Monica, and all that shit is meant to disempower women and to silence them. That's what lock her up means. Let me rephrase it for you and see if this makes any more sense to you. Cambridge Analytica, by the way, generated these phrases with the Russians. 
for the Russians at the behest of billionaires Robert Mercer and Facebook helped weaponize them and put them on the internet. This is what happened in our election. Um, if I said fuck her up or beat her up or shut her up, would you understand it more clearly? Lock her up means women don't get to talk. They get to shut the fuck up and let men do whatever they want to them. And I am fucking done with it. The Republican Party, as far as I'm concerned, can be destroyed for the next 500 years and I never ever want to see one of them ever again. I don't ever want to hear another white guy accuse another woman of lying. I don't ever want to see an old, rich, out-of-touch guy tell me what a 15-year-old girl was supposed to do 36 years ago. At the rally, 45 said, why didn't she go to the authorities right away? Why didn't she go to the FBI? Well, I don't know if you remember when you were in high school and something bad would happen to you and immediately you would pick up that FBI hotline. <laughs> the red phone that was in your room that went directly to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Teenage Sexual Assault Division where every single woman was believed Immediately, an avuncular grandfatherly character actor would come on the line and go, yes, dear? And you go, a guy tried to rape me last night. Well, tell me all about it and we'll get to the bottom of this. Then there'll be cake at the end and punishment for the perpetrator, I assure you. No, no women are ever believed. 98% of rapists go fucking unindicted. Rape kits get thrown away all the fucking time. Women are never fucking believed. And I am fucking done with it. If you have been assaulted and you're listening to me, you can uh, call R-A-I-N-N, 800-656-H-O-P-E, 800-656-H-O-P-E, and talk to them about it. What happened this week was a hashtag came out on Twitter called Why I Didn't Report. And story after story after story after story after terrible tale of women. I was in the Navy. He was my commanding officer. I worked at a shop, he was my boss. I worked at a law firm, he groped me. It doesn't always have to be violent sexual assault. There's a million grades of men taking advantage of women. Hey, nice tits. Hey, would you like to see my dick? Hey, why don't you blow me? Hey, I grabbed your ass. Hey, I reached up your skirt. Hey, I won't look you in the eyes when I fucking talk to you. Hey, I passed you over for promotion. Every woman in this room knows exactly what I'm fucking talking about. And every man in this room knows in their heart that they know it. If you don't, and you're a man and you're listening to me right now, whether you're listening on the podcast or you're listening in this room, if this is unclear to you, go to the women in your life and ask them. The reason why they didn't tell you is they were ashamed or embarrassed or knew even more certainly than being shamed and embarrassed that no man wants to hear it because there's no system to deal with this at all. The system is queered irrevocably so that men are always believed. Men's careers are on the line. Poor Judge Kavanaugh, what if he doesn't get to be on the Supreme Court? <laughs> Poor Matt Lauer, what if he doesn't get to make $25 million a year being the worst goddamn breakfast show host in the history of fucking mankind? <laughs> Poor Charlie Rose. Poor Harvey Weinstein, what if he doesn't get to ruin every great actress's life of the last generation? You realize that Ashley Judd and Mira Sorvino were going to be in The Hobbit, I mean, the, the Lord of the Rings, and that Weinstein called Peter Jackson and said, they're a nightmare to work with, don't work with them, because they wouldn't shag him. And so their careers were ruined. If you ever wondered why Mira Sorvino was in all those movies in the mid-90s and was a big star up to the early 2000s and then that kind of slowed down, and Ashley Judd, think about it with any actress you can think of. When you think of an actress and go, how come she doesn't have a gig anymore and yet Jack Nicholson, who's a known perpetrator, worked till the end of fucking time? 
It's because the people who run show business are men, and they feel it is their, if you'll pardon the expression, to use an old French expression, the droit de seigneur. Droit de seigneur means I get to sleep with the prettiest daughter. I know this isn't the funniest goddamn podcast I've ever put out. <laughs> but I have been fucking burning over this. I was a waiter at a restaurant in San Francisco called the Atherton. And it was a largely gay clientele. And sometimes guys would come in and they'd be pretty juiced. I remember returning people's tips. I wasn't that good a waiter. I, if, if you left me 50 cents on a $100 tab, I would chase you down the stairs and give you the fucking money back. I, I did that more than once. One night, two guys came in and they were dressed identical. They had flannel shirts and jeans on. And they had little thrones that they sat in, like little wooden chairs with cushies on them. And these guys were shit-faced when they sat down. They ordered wine. I brought them wine. And one guy passed out in his seat and urinated himself, right? So I went to the manager, Rick, and I was like, Rick, you've got to deal with this. I'm not fucking dealing with it. And he came in and he went, okay, Shriners, move out. And so, and there was a, a guy, the seamstress at the hotel was named Anthony. And Anthony said to me, I think I might have told the story, but I'll tell it again. Because it's leading to another one. Um, Anthony goes, Greg, do you, he was from uh, New Jersey. He had a beard. This is the, the 80s in San Francisco. Greg, do you trust me? And I said... <laughs> I trust you implicitly, Anthony. And he goes, I mean, do you really trust me? And I said, of course I do, darling. And he goes, then take this. Boom. And he shoved a pill in my mouth, right? And it was amphetamine. And I was fucking running up and down the stairs of waiting on table. I had a chicken dish with rice and shit. And we had to turn a corner on the staircase. And I had the chicken. And I tripped and I fell. And the chicken did a two-bank carom like this. Bang, bang, off the wall, right? And flew back onto the carpet, right? <laughs> So I was like, fuck, what do I do? So I picked up the chicken and I ran back into the kitchen and Mark, the chef, who was a Hollywood queen, he had the feathered hair and shit, goes, give it to me. And fucking washed it off in the sink, put it on the grill, and then fucking put it back on the plate and gave it to me. <laughs> I was so janked out on speed that I actually ran up the stairs and the chicken, I could see it in slow motion. <laughs> like a bumper shot. The chicken just banged off. And there was chicken grease on the wall. <laughs> So one night, uh, this guy named Gabriel, who was on the kitchen crew, goes, you want to come back to my apartment? It's right nearby, and we'll smoke some dope. And I'm like, okay, I will, Gabriel. So I go back to the apartment with him, and he was pretty shit-faced, right? And as soon as we got to the apartment, he fucking jumped me, okay? And he was holding me, and he, was, he said, Greg, I want to come all over your face, right? And he was holding me down, and I fucking fought him off, and I said, Gabriel, I really like you. Why did I tell him I liked him? Because I was afraid and fucking scared and I didn't think it was going to fucking happen and I fought my way out of the fucking room and I never told anyone until right now tonight. I've never fucking told anyone in my life this fucking story. He was a man. He was drunk. He was strong. Um, I wouldn't say he was bigger than me and I'm not going to exaggerate what happened. I fought him off and I got the fuck out of there. I did not want him to ejaculate on me. Why I told him that I liked him, I'll never fucking understand. I think it was just so I could get out of the goddamn room. But everybody has gone through this in their life. If 45 refuses to understand this and every single member of the Republican Party refuses to misunderstand us, they have to understand one other thing. In November, we're having a midterm election. And their party is hemorrhaging women. I can't think of any person of color who would vote for a Republican right now, knowing that they're the party of caged babies, the party of defending pedophiles, and the party of defending Brett fucking Kavanaugh in the face of this. Why I didn't report is trending on Twitter all weekend, and the unbelievable tidal wave of fury uh, of every woman and every man 
saying Charles Blow, who writes a column for the New York Times, is a very tall, good-looking, black gay man who writes for the New York Times. He admitted on CNN two days ago that he was sexually assaulted, and you should have seen that fucking panel on CNN, like... (laughs) Because no one wants to fucking talk about this, ever, 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 and that's why I'm talking about it right now. I've had it with fucking white guys. I've had it with men in general. I've had it with the club atmosphere. I am begging you, all of my brothers out there, don't stand for this shit. One, don't send women dick pics. Two, if you're even thinking about taking a picture of your cock, don't. Put the phone down. Take a picture of a kitten or something. If a woman asks to see your penis, hooray. Lucky fucking you. Women will give you real strong cues that they want you to get there and get in going. Believe me, they will. It happens all the time. Women are very generous that way. If they want you to be inside them, They will give you every indication that they want you to be inside them. If they do not give you any indications, back the fuck off. You don't own them because you bought them a sandwich at Tim Hortons. You don't own them because you took them to see fucking Home and Away. Home from Away, whatever that's fucking called. You don't own them because you took them to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. You don't own them because you bought them a beer at the Jays game. You don't own them because you fucking got them a drink. You don't own them because you think they're attractive. You don't own them for any of those fucking reasons. Every single person is entitled to their fucking physical autonomy, their sexual autonomy, and their sexual destiny of an evening. And further, if you know that guys are doing it, fucking deal, deal intervene. Don't let guys do it. And I'm getting down to the level here where I mean like, look at that chick over there. I'd like to fuck her. That shit's got to fucking got to stop. It's got to stop. It really does. We're all sexual people. What you think in your privacy, what you say to your best friends, whatever. I just mean when groups of guys get together and I mean at work, I mean at work. Every woman here has a job. And every woman at their job has to deal with those fucking assholes every fucking day of their fucking life. And it makes your life a living hell. And it grinds you down. And it tears away at your soul. And it makes you feel like less of a person because you can't stand up and fucking scream at the top of your voice and take a fucking flamethrower into work and melt them into fucking butter. (laughs) And believe me, it does. Those men coughing are men crying. That's how men cry. Men go like this. You better fucking believe it. You better fucking believe it. Men cry by clearing their throats. Men cry by coughing because this makes them uncomfortable. It makes me fucking uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. But it should also make you realize that you can't support anyone who supports this anymore. At all. You, I don't care if uh, they were a great artist and they made you laugh. They have to be expelled and expunged. Um, we have to rewrite history right now going forward, as uh, Obama would say. Um, I I can't anymore. I I don't want to hear, I I can't stand hearing male comics who uh, think women are bitches or their wife is a a bitch to them or or women are too fat or women aren't sexually desirable enough for them. It's so boring to me. I could just fucking kill myself. The reason when I started in the 80s, I couldn't get anyone cool to come to a comedy club was because that was what the image of comedy was 30 years ago. The image of comedy was a guy, a frat guy, standing on stage talking about fucking women sucking his dick. 
That's what fucking comedy was. And to me, I've tried to shake it for a thousand fucking years. Obviously, comedy's not like that anymore. Thank God we're in a bright, big, bold, new world where lots of women and people of color and trans people and people who are disabled and people... uh, We need to fight for fucking everyone equally and comedically as well. Now, I'm not saying there should never be fucking dick jokes. I tell a lot of fucking dick jokes. One of my jokes on the album is, I want a woman president, but I have very strict qualifications for the woman president that I want, because people said so often in the last election, I want a woman, but just not that one, which of course is code for I hate women. And my, one of my qualifications is I want her to brag about herself incessantly. I have the tightest cooch of any fucking president in the world. You couldn't get into my cooch with a catheter and a tube of KY jelly. Hey, Angela Merkel, leader of the free world. Let's see who has a tighter cooch. Let's have a cooch off. I'm not saying I'm not going to do fucking knob gags and shit. I'm just saying that diminishing other people. And by the way, there's a code of conduct. I'm going to, I have to wrap up here because the show's over. But there's a code of conduct here at JFL. I'm not kidding. It's posted on the wall back there. And we were all given one in our folder when we got to the hostility. Hospitality. And it says you're not to diminish anybody and you're not to uh, 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 make uh, 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 disparaging comments about people because of their race, gender, uh, and on and on and on. And I think it's beautiful. As you know, JFLs had their own issues with things that have gone on with them. And so it's very important that they address that uh, right then and fucking there. Um, all I can say is this. I think that it's been a great as they would have said in the 19th century, a great getting up morning. Because everyone realizes now that we're all bound together by this. And the fury that's been unleashed by this can't be put back in the can. And the promise of it is that it stops and that it changes immediately right now. Because now we're seeing someone who is absolutely malfeasant being defended by someone who is clearly malfeasant, who appointed them to this position where they can systematically destroy the rights of women and people of color for the rest of their life. This man's 51 years old. He could be on the court for 35 years. And the Supreme Court has no rules. They can do whatever the fuck they like. And they can adjudicate however the fuck they want. It's so important to send the message right now that this won't be tolerated. And not only will it not be tolerated, that everyone who acts this way, whether they're your boss or they're your coworker or they're your friend, or they're your brother or they're just someone you run with has to fucking change their shit right this goddamn second. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to take a long time but I'm super excited that the prospect um, that it's, it's taken something this horrible. The gigantic series of events. First Brexit which was also engineered by Cambridge Analytica and, and weaponized by Facebook and pushed forward by right-wing um, Nazis uh, such as Boris Johnson in, in the UK. Um, what happened with our election, which was a right-wing misogynist, uh, white supremacist, uh, FBI-assisted CIA-hacked Russian, interfered um, backlash. Uh, and not letting a woman be president, even though she won the popular vote because we have a slave state that allots... Um, Uh, electoral votes to slave states because they wanted the slave states to be happy when black people were three-fifths of a human, according to the Supreme Court, who had ruled on that. All these things have led to us being here right now, where our fury, our anger, our righteous indignation, the fact that 
we march in giant numbers now, and we know we're the majority. That white men are like the last few dinosaurs receding over the fucking horizon as the warm-blooded fucking mammals come forward to embrace one another in happiness and joy. All I can say to you is um, never give up and know that you're loved and know that I fucking believe you if no one else fucking does. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out. May every page you turn be a Sacha page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool Baba Bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. I wish you nothing but that.